Well, good morning, one and all. If you are uh, there on YouTube today, we're going to be in Mark chapter 14. And so if you have your Bible there with you and you want to turn there, or maybe with your phone, you want to tap your way there, or uh, in the notes, uh, there'll be a link in the chat uh, where you can actually just follow the the passage that we're reading from is uh, right there at the beginning, opening page of my notes. So if you want to follow along with that, you can do that. But Mark chapter 14 is where we are today. So if you'll turn your way there, we'll read, uh, we'll pray, and then we'll get right into it. Mark chapter 14. Let's look at this together. Where Mark records, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, being Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they said to one another, not during the Passover feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while Jesus was at the town of Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask and broke an alabaster flask, excuse me, of ointment of pure nard, this very costly ointment. And she broke the flask and poured it over Jesus's head. As Jesus receives this, as the woman does this over Jesus, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And so they began to scold her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me for you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went out to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard of it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray. And so, Father, here we are again, uh, one year uh, in this digital space that we've been occupying. Uh, I was going to say some of us, but in all likelihood, all of us um, are just exhausted. We're hungry uh, for, for some level of, of a normalcy, and yet we continue uh, to make these sacrifices. God trying uh, to be wise stewards of the moment that we find ourselves in, finding the ways that we can best uh, love our neighbor. And so God, we pray that uh, you would now meet us uh, digitally spaced out over the West side as we may be over the city of Los Angeles, that you might help us as we set our attention to Mark chapter 14 to receive from it what this story means for us, what it's calling us to consider. Be with us, we pray. Amen. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be a human being? If archaeology is of any authority on the subject, human beings, as far back as we can tell, are altar-making creatures. 
the oldest human structures that we have of humanity, all of the remnants of our ancestors as far back as we can continue to find are altars or temples with an altar at the middle of them. The oldest human structure that we have uh, in uh, uh, Turkey uh, today is Gobekli Tepe, which is, translates roughly to Potbelly Hill. This uh, little outcropping that was built on the top of this hill, Potbelly Hill, um, rises up with the middle of it there being this kind of raised area with an altar right there. This dates back to 8,000 or 10,000 BC. That is 10 or 12,000 years ago. As archaeologists continue the work of discovering our story, the human story, the consistent theme that keeps coming up are these altars, these places of sacrifice all over the world, separated by thousands of miles, people that didn't uh, not only live in completely different times, but completely different spaces, and, and all of us raising up on our own accord and our own little stories all over the world as we've been spread out. We continue throughout history to make these places of sacrifice, these altars where animals, where bread, incense, oil, even in some cultures, one another, other cultures, even our own children, where we as humans come to this altar place and we say yes to the deity or to the spirits, to the gods, and no to whatever that thing is being sacrificed. No to the oil being poured out. No to the animal being sacrificed, something that could have been used for us. Even no to our own children throughout human history. Humans are altar-making creatures. This is what it means to be human. If archaeology is of, is of any service to us. And this idea of why humans make altars, why humans make anything to begin with, and what separates us from the rest of the, you know, the zoological world, is, is what separates us. I mean, this idea of an altar, of saying yes to something, and in doing so, saying no to something else, it's maybe rooted in our capacity for volition, for decision-making, for free will, that we, by our decision-making, shape this world. I would argue that our ancient altars are a reflection of our human heart. We build our lives, we build our world through the sacrifices that we make, those things that we say no to as we say yes to other things. If you think through some of the more important, you know, commitments that human beings have ever made throughout history is this idea of marriage. Literally happening where throughout most of human history on an altar. Where in this moment, the two that have come together here are saying, I do to one another. And in doing so saying, I don't to everybody else out there. Even in the absence of physical altars, we continue today to build our lives around the sacrifices that we make, the no's as we say yes. To say yes to living in LA is to say no, not only to living anywhere else, but saying no to things like parking and rent and like ever being able to own a house, right? Traffic where I can actually get somewhere without just banging my head against the wall and always listening to you know, I just go through so many podcasts sitting in traffic. But over the past year, we haven't had to, but the days are, are returning, it seems. And even those around the world who say no to living like somewhere in LA, for them is, you know, they're saying no to LA and they might be saying yes to, you know, somewhere in Missouri or Utah or wherever they're at. But in saying no to LA, they're also saying no. They're sacrificing the culture of Los Angeles, the geography of where we live, the weather, thank God, of where we live the life and the culture of this city. Our lives are built by the things that we say yes to, but more importantly within that is in doing so what we say no to, the sacrifices that we make. 
All of us in some way have said yes to some career. In doing so, at least as long as we continue to show up to work, we are sacrificing. We're saying no to all of the other opportunities that are in front of us. Some of you may be questioning the sacrifice that you've made. For those of us that have kids or have had the opportunity to say yes to having children, this is at the same time a sacrifice. It is a no to the ideas of like a full night's sleep, of sanity in a clean house. What we say yes to always comes with all of these no's. Even for our really deep, close friendships, those that we say yes to in some way is us saying no to deep relationships with so many. We, we are not these, these um, limitless beings. And so we have to make decisions of saying yes and no, of where we live, of what we do, and, and the relationships we build our lives with. See, every purchase, every relationship, every career choice, every decision comes at cost, comes at sacrifice. With every yes, there are countless no's. I remember years ago reading this interview with Steve Jobs about the process of them saying yes to that first iPhone, the creation of the thing that kind of changed the world. And, and he was reflecting on them saying yes to the one thing that was that first iPhone was countless millions, he said, of no's along the way. How much more behind the iPhone or for the purchases that we make, the relationships that we have, how much more for the us, that we, the you that we are making? At the end of the day, our lives, as we look back on them, the yes of the life that we're living, the yes of the life that we will live comes and is determined by the totality of the no's that we make along the way. This can be little or big. It can be little, the, the little, you know, the question of Netflix asking, are you still watching? And my yes to that moment is a no to like a full night's sleep and not, you know, being able to survive the next day without copious amounts of caffeine. I mean, even in our age of the internet, globalization and in a consumer culture, it leads to uh, what's called decision paralysis, where all of the little uh, opportunities and options before us is we, we, we know that in saying yes to this one cereal or yes to this moment or yes to this, or yes to this event means that we're saying no and we're terrified that we're gonna be saying no to something that's actually better than the thing that we said yes to. So we have de decision paralysis and, and FOMO. And so we can either say yes to this one cereal or we try to say yes to all of them, but then we spend far too much money on cereal and we're sit. We, our lives are built around these little sacrifices, the yeses and the nos. But again, even at a larger level, there are these big core decisions that we make about where we live, about the community that we're gonna build ourselves around, around the relationships that we build up. If children are not having children, if that's the life that we have, of, of the work that we have, or the habits that we give ourselves to, these are the shaping sacrifices of our lives. You see, our sacrifices determine our lives because our sacrifices reveal our love. Because love, in essence, is sacrifice. Love is not measured in words or emotions, but in action sacrifice. If you think through the moments of your life that you felt the most loved by someone, the odds are it was when someone said in some way no to something or even someone so they might say yes to you. And those moments of the most pain were when you heard someone say no to you that you had thought had said yes, when someone sacrificed you for something or someone else. As little as someone dropping plans, but a, a breakup and a relationship and engagement that fell apart where a spouse cheated on you or divorce came when dad was absent as a child because he sacrificed you and family on the altar 
of work or the mother who sacrificed you and the family for a better, at least more comfortable life. This is what happens behind these habits and buildups, even addictions as well as the yeses and the noes that begin the priorities reveal and they're not what we would want. Even for those of us that have experienced sexual assault at its core, that this is when someone sacrificed us on the altar of their own pleasure. Most often someone that we trusted, someone we thought that had said yes to us actually said no. See, our sacrifices, not our words, reveal our love, our commitment, and our priorities. We've spent a little bit of time setting up this idea of sacrifice here because as we come to Mark 14 today, we're going to be looking at two examples of sacrifice, of love. Because again, Mark, in writing the story of Jesus, as he's written this not just as a biography of the life of Jesus, but as an invitation into the story of what it means to be a part of this story not just to inform us of Jesus, but to form us as followers of him. And Mark today in setting forward these two examples is going to ask you and me to consider our sacrifices, to consider our love, to consider our lives. Using his favorite sandwich literary technique that we've talked about time and again, Mark sets before us the sacrifice of Judas on the outside of the story and the sacrifice of this anonymous woman on the inside. And in doing so, As we bite into the sandwich, Mark is encouraging and asking us to ask, what are the sacrifices that are determining your lives? What are the sacrifices that are revealing what you truly love? It may not be what we always hope. Let's start with the bread of the sandwich on those outside, the story of the sacrifice of Judas. Now, Judas Iscariot, in many ways, is history's most infamous traitor. One author wrote a book on Judas, the subtitle being the most hated name in history. He has showed up in songs by Jay-Z, by Lady Gaga, by Bob Dylan. I mean, anybody that that has that, that level of Judas is a very, very big deal. He even showed up his name uh, in the recently released uh, movie, Judas and the Black Messiah, retelling the story of William O'Neill's betrayal of uh, the Chicago Black Panther Party's uh, uh, chairman, Fred Hampton, in the 1960s. Seeing overlaid within the story, another story of a follower who betrayed the one that they were closest to, this, this kind of figure, this leader within this movement. Judas is infamous. Most of us know the story, him being one of the 12 disciples with Jesus for three years, watching his ministry of healing people, teaching, proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom of God. We know about his betrayal, selling him to the chief priest. We know about the kiss in the garden of Gethsemane, the betrayal. Many of us know of what would happen in the hours to come, racked with regret and guilt and shame, ultimately, committing suicide, hanging himself on a tree in what was then referred to as the field of blood. Many of us know the story of Judas, and yet there's a question that hangs over the betrayal of Jesus in all four of Mark's, uh, not four of Mark's, all four of the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This question that is unanswered by all four of them. And there's the question of why behind the betrayal. What would cause someone, in particular Judas, to sacrifice, to betray, to say no to Jesus and yes to whatever else might be in front of him? 
See, over the past 2,000 years, Christians have been reading closely, following the gospel accounts, trying to determine why. What, what led Judas to do this? Many points were being rooted in something financial. The fact that the reason that he comes to the chief priest is an exchange of money. Even more than that, John's gospel gives us a little more details about the person of Judas that not just being one of the 12 disciples, he managed the like, collective purse, the money for the group. So all of the money that they were kind of living off of buying bread, taking care of one another, even giving to the poor, that Judas was the one who managed it. But John lets us know that he was not a very good uh, uh, guy to, to, to look over that, that he was regularly pulling off of the top for himself. He was a thief. And so you have this story that within the three years of Jesus's ministry, this character of Judas managing the money all the while is pulling off to the side. And here towards the end of Jesus's life, he sees that now's the time to hit the eject button. This thing's gonna fall apart. So I might as well get a couple dollars on the way out. Others point to beyond just the financial, maybe alongside it, uh, the title of Iscariot being more than just like his last name, uh, being a, a connection to this, this assassinating, this, this group of assassins in and around the, the time of Jesus. They were called the Sicarii. They were known, it's like Assassin's Creed if you've ever played the game, right? Okay, maybe just me. But there was a group of these assassins within uh, Israel's time that uh, they carried these short swords in their cloaks and they would kill these Roman leaders. And there are some that connected Judas to possibly being connected to this political vision. And that what he's doing here is he either, one of two things sees in Jesus. Either one, Jesus's vision of the kingdom is detrimental and it's not healthy. He actually sides with the chief priests. What Jesus is doing is not gonna get Israel where it needs to go. And so he sees himself as doing what's best for Israel in betraying him. Or others might look to it and say, what Judas is actually doing is he's trying to kind of kickstart, force Jesus's hand into a violent revolution by getting the chief priest to come with swords. And then Jesus will finally like lay down the like, you know, peacemaking, nonviolence, non-retaliation stuff. And he'll finally step up and, and do what's necessary. So whatever it is, financial or some kind of political cultural honor that's motivating Judas What's interesting, like I said, is that this is conjecture, studied intellectual conjecture, but it conjecture all the same because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John never explicitly say, this is why Judas did it. And that's a glaring absence and one of the turning points of the gospel story. So glaring is its absence that the question is, well, it, it must be intentional. There must be a purpose behind why they would do this. So the question is then, why know why? This could possibly be because betrayal is never simple. Whenever you've been betrayed, or maybe you look back on a story where you betrayed someone that you loved, and it's, you look over those, those moments and those years leading up to it, the weeks leading up to it, and it was, it's not this clear-cut black and white moment. It's this mix of intentions and desires and even your own deception in that moment or their deception, and it's very difficult to summarize, and so that might be one reason why. I think... That's possibly true, but I think the likely reason, knowing what Mark's been trying to do throughout his gospel, is Mark wants to present Judas more like a mirror to ponder than a villain to be maligned. Because our lives are determined by our sacrifices. Our love are revealed by our sacrifices. And this is as true of Judas as it is of you and me. Judas's life was determined by his sacrifice of Jesus to the high priests. His life was determined. In doing so, 
It led to shame and fear and guilt and regret and ultimately led to him taking his own life. And in that moment, not only was his life determined, but in some way his love was revealed, whether that was for the financial payout or some political ideology, we can safely say it was not Jesus that was his love in this moment. It was not the way of the kingdom. It was not God. And so Mark, writing again his gospel, both being informative of the story of Jesus, but formative for the people of Jesus, sets Judas here as a mirror for you and I to ask by not giving the why for you to ask yourself why I would have said no to Jesus, to sacrifice him, why I would have rejected Jesus or why I currently am. And again, just like the sacrifices before, these can be big and little. For some, this can be the big, the big sacrifice, the big rejection, the big no that is walking away from the faith or maybe never entering into the way of Jesus in the first place. For those, many of you watching that identify as a Christian, this more often shows up in these little sacrifices, these little daily departures that maybe you haven't gotten to the place of saying no to Jesus and handing him over to the chief priest. But like Judas, you're kind of doing the religious thing following Jesus while you're saying no to him by taking a little bit off of what you want on the side, stealing. The warning in the story of Judas is that for him, the pickpocketing from the collective purse over the course of the three years is what led to him finally rejecting Jesus here in the text today. It is the little rejections and the little no's that finally lead to the big one. Nobody ever wakes up and says, I'm gonna commit adultery on my spouse today. It is fostered and developed over the long haul of weeks and years of undealt with, unrepentant, unchanged, little tiny rejections. Little no's to their spouse, little no's to faithfulness. No one betrays a close friend without little rejections leading along the way. And so for you, like Judas, those big or little reasons that you reject and sacrifice Jesus, they may be financial. They may be the political, cultural kind of honor thing like we see within that of that relevance and acceptance within your culture, whether that's the chief high priests or modern Los Angeles. It could be some relationship. It could be some, uh, some uh, component of our sexuality, some component of, of your perception of what ethics should look like, that there is something that you see within the way of Jesus that causes you to say no, to put him on the altar, sacrificing him so you can say yes to something else. And every relationship sooner or later reaches that altar. Every relationship sooner or later reaches a point of decision where we say either I do and in doing say I don't to everything else or we say I don't to the person and we move on. Once again, there's a reason that marriage is for so long. That, that ceremony has happened at an altar. It is a moment where you are in one way, yes, sacrificing yourself as you enter into it. You're saying no to, to me as I say yes to you, but I'm also saying no to the billions of other fish in the sea, the other people out there, and I'm saying yes to you. It happens in friendships. It happens in church communities. It happens in our relationship with Jesus. At some point, the individual or, I mean, even to go larger, that within like moving to a city like Los Angeles or a career choice, at some point, we can no longer deconstruct the other into manageable or ignorable parts. And we have to say, you, with all of who you are, or you, the city of Los Angeles, with all that you are, collective, this church, with all that this thing is, 
my career path, with all that it is, I can't ignore, I can't uh, manipulate and, and try to make you into something that I want you to be. And so I have a decision in this moment. I either say I don't and I walk away or I say I do and I work into the process of then realizing that what do I have to say no to in order to say yes to you? It's true with all relationships and it's true with our relationship with Jesus. For Judas, over the course of three years, he was saying little no's, little no's, little no's. And then here on the night of the Passover feast, he is faced with the big thing. What is he going to do with Jesus? And he finally says, no, he hands him over to the chief priests. For Judas, it took three years for some of you, not just for some of you, what we know over the past year, for some, it has been this year that has done that. This year has been an altar year for many. And it has been heartbreaking to watch individuals within our own community who have said no to Jesus and no to his kingdom and no to his church and said yes. Yes to either a specific political ideology, yes to a particular understanding of a sexual ethic, yes to a particular... It has been, we've watched this happen. They have come to the altar, no longer able to deconstruct Jesus into their ignorable or manipulative parts to say yes to Jesus in his totality and no to themselves and their way. And they have chosen other than Jesus. This came through our cultural climate and political. This came through us going through the story of justice over the summer. It's come through us going through the story of the gospel of Mark and just seeing Jesus for who he is. This has been heartbreaking as a pastor to watch. I know for some of you as friends, it's been heartbreaking to witness. As people have sacrificed Jesus and his church for fill in the blank. And this is heartbreaking, not because it's they're going to some different team. This is heartbreaking because when we sacrifice Jesus, we never get what we were looking for. As we're going to later read in the story, Judas's payment, him being promised for money, is he gets a paltry 30 silver coins. It is not much. It was a wasteful sacrifice. It was a bad investment. It's the story of the, the tragedy of Judas. It's him giving up the greatest thing that he couldn't have given up. And not that he got something of equal or comparable worth, but something that was so awful to him so low compared to what he even thought he was getting that the Judas throws the money away, leaving him then with nothing at all. Reminded back in the story of, of Genesis with Esau and Jacob, where Esau sells his birthright. You know, this would be the firstborn blessings back in the day where they were given basically all of the finances, the land of the family. They became the new kind of patriarch back in the day. This is the one who oversaw everything. Esau has that as the firstborn and he sells it to his brother for a bowl of soup. Not even soup, stew, like red stuff is like what it's, it's just red soup. And, Ju- and Esau sells it. For every, he could have had, he had everything and he gives it for this. And the saddest moment is then after the transition of the birthright going to his, his younger brother is he's pleading, tear, sobbing, this grown man in his father's lap. Is there any blessing left for me? I said, your, your blessing was the, the bowl, the empty bowl in the sink. This is heartbreaking as we continue to watch people who have gone the way of Judas who have been forced and finally come to the point of seeing Jesus for who he is and have said no and walked away. 
You see, Mark retells the tragedy of Judas, not simply as a villain for us to revile, but as a mirror to ponder. And Judas is not alone within these final chapters of Mark. It is incredible. When you uh, look through the language of betray in Greek that Mark's writing in, as he keeps using this word uh, that, that can be translated as betray or as handed over, and it keeps happening by other people again and again. It's not just Judas. It's Judas, yes, but it's also the disciples. It's Peter. It's the Sanhedrin, the chief priests who hand him over, betray him to Pilate. Pilate hands him over to Herod. Herod hands him back to Pilate. Pilate hands him to the crowds and the crowds hand him to the centurion, the Roman guards who crucify him. Time and again, Mark sets before us, not just to inform us of the story of Jesus, but to form us as people of Jesus, that people continue to betray, to say no, to sacrifice Jesus. In the story, it's not just the Jews, but the Gentiles, not just the elite, but the crowds, not just the disciples, but his enemies. Everybody betrays and sacrifices Jesus. And Mark's hope is that you might catch yourself in the mirror and to ask, what have I sacrificed Jesus for? Because our lives are determined and our love is revealed by our sacrifices. But Mark doesn't leave us up Judas Creek without a paddle. He gives us someone else to consider and follow as we look at the sacrifice of Mary. In the middle of the story, we are introduced to, in Mark's gospel, is this nameless woman. In John's gospel, written a couple decades later, he would tell us her name is Mary. She is uh, one of Jesus' disciples, part of this larger group that would follow him. And uh, was brother to, or her brother was Lazarus, the one that Jesus raised from the dead. Now, it's interesting as Mark makes her anonymous in his gospel, likely because of his earlier writing date when there was a larger amount of persecution against the early Jesus movement. And so Mark makes her anonymous as a way to uh, preserve and, and give her safety so that nobody would you know, read this and, okay, we can go take care of Mary. We found one of the followers. She's the brother of Lazarus. So we find Lazarus, then we go, he's trying to protect her. And John writing decades later, it's a little bit safer. And so he's okay with giving the name. But regardless, Mark sets the contrast for us. Where Judas sacrificed Jesus, Mary, an anonymous woman, sacrifices for Jesus. And Mary is one more link in this chain of faithful women throughout the gospel of Mark. If you've been reading through the gospel of Mark with us, we've had the bleeding women. We have had the Syrophoenician mother. We've had the poor widow two weeks ago. Time and again, women show up and they're consistently faithful and fearless and dedicated where so many of the male disciples of Jesus are regularly tripping all over themselves. These women continue to stand forward as these models and portraits of the prototype of discipleship. Yes, we get men here and there. (laughs) This is not to say that this is one, but there's there's a unique thing that Mark's doing here that is anything but anti-women as some may portray the way of Jesus to be. But what is the the sacrifice of Mary that is set forward as an example? It's actually not one, but two sacrifices, which actually are eerily mirror uh, the the possible reasons of Judas's betrayal. They are a sacrifice of her honor and sacrifices of finance. What Judas sacrificed Jesus for, Mary sacrifices for Jesus. The first is her honor. You might've read right past this, but in her day and age, it was dishonorable for women to come to the men's feast, the men's table without 
carrying food, basically. That was the response. Like women, that's the dude's table. Unless you're bringing food, leave the men alone. And Mary stands at the threshold of the doorway looking in. She stands at the altar. And she decides that she's going to say yes to Jesus. She's going to say yes to likely shame for Jesus and no to cultural honor, to respect within her day of kind of her playing by the cultural expectations of what it means for her to be a good woman. Amen. But the second topic is that she not only sacrifices her honor in this moment, is she sacrifices what becomes the topic of heated conversation, this financially expensive, this costly ointment, literally sacrificing it, destroying it. She breaks it open, Mark records. And in this moment, she says yes to Jesus and no to her future, to her safety, you see, before banks and savings accounts, families back in this day, that they would own or possess, you know, one or two really costly family heirlooms. These things that would be set aside, never used. This ointment was not meant to be used. It was set aside as a, a fallback, as a savings account, as a plan B for uh, hard times. And so for Mary as a woman, this is especially true with her father, uh, who's elderly, likely to pass away at some point, that that, the sale of that costly heirloom would be the thing that would keep the family afloat as they got all of their things in order, as they could figure out where they're, what the future is going to be. So the whole point of this is that you would say, I mean, the 300 denarii, this is a year's salary. This is, you know, when her father would pass and we've got to figure out what the new, the new setup is going to be, how th- what are we going to do that this would be kind of like this gift from the father to the family, that they would be able to financially make it to stay afloat. And this is what she goes and brings and breaks and anoints over Jesus. So more than just some kind gesture on Mary's behalf, this is her literally sacrificing her financial security, her safety, her provision, her plan B. With the crash of the alabaster flask, Mary gives a surrendered yes to Jesus and no to security and safety and in, in, in future in some way. As Jesus put it, show me your treasure and there your heart will be. Jesus says, show me with your money what you say yes to and I will show you what you've said no to and what you ultimately have said yes to. Show me your checking account. Show me your savings. I'm not asking you, I don't want to see that. But you go look over your checking account. Go look over your savings and, and, and you will be able to define in some way what it is that you're saying yes to. And by implication, what you're saying no to. And so she gives this incredibly costly gift. And so the reaction of the disciples is they begin to scold and rebuke her. I love that Judas, he makes it um, an explicit appearance within John's gospel. I think Mark kind of calls for us to infer that it's Judas based off his sandwich layout, that, that that would be the case. John makes it explicit for us. The guy who stands up and is scolding and rebuking her is Judas. Judas is the one that says, "How? why would you do something so costly? Why would you do something so great? You should sell it, give it to the poor. The idea being based off what we know about Judas is that he doesn't actually care about the poor. He just wants that 300 denarii to go in the common purse so he can take his little you know, Judas tax so he can steal from the top. And so Judas doesn't join in with, uh, Jesus doesn't join in with Judas's scolding, but he actually turns his scolding on Judas and any others that were with him. He begins to praise this woman for her sacrifice and he gives three reasons for it. 
The first, he says, is that her sacrifice is beautiful. In contrast to Judas's perspective of it being wasteful, Jesus says her gift is beautiful. What the world and even those within the church may call wasteful or wrong or shameful, Jesus says this is actually a beautiful gift. Not only is her gift beautiful, it's timely. Jesus says there in verse seven that uh, she has not just done a beautiful thing, but in verse seven, this, this question of wanting to give it to the poor, Jesus says, you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good to them, but you will not always have me with you. Jesus says she is giving something that is a timely gift. She's giving something. I'm not always going to be here. So she's giving an extravagant gift to the Jesus that he says, I'm going away soon. I'm going to my death. Jesus saying the poor you always have with you is this really profound quote from Deuteronomy chapter 15, where sometimes people will use Jesus's words here out of context. You'll always have the poor with you as a reason for apathy regarding the poor. We're in Jesus's perspective and in Deuteronomy's use of it, that saying you always have the poor with you is not so that you may be apathetic towards the poor, but so that you may be without excuse regarding the poor. You can never hang up your hat in generosity to the poor and say, that's it. We've got things taken care of over here but that you always have a a driving concern in care. You are never without opportunity to care for the poor. And so Jesus doesn't discount that. He just says, she's acknowledging there's a particular change of something that's going on in this moment. And so hers is timely. And so for us in our time, we don't have Jesus bodily with us. And so in our sacrifices for him, we now give to his, him not being bodily with us, the way that he is bodily with us now is through his church. And so we are generous in our sacrifices to his church, his body, and continuing to do so through the poor and often those overlapping and working together. And so she gives a beautiful gift, a timely gift. And then even, man, on the, you always have the poor with you. This is just for free. Our Acts chapter four, describing the early years of the Jesus movement, the church. Acts 4.34 describes the early church and it says there was not a needy person among them, which is a reversal of Deuteronomy 15, a reversal of you always have the poor with you. The early church gets going and is recounted by Luke that there was not a needy person among them. They were so generous that they actually reversed what Deuteronomy 15 was saying. So good. So Jesus says that her gift is beautiful. Her sacrifice is timely. And then finally, her sacrifice is symbolic. Symbolic in two ways. The first is that this breaking, this sacrifice of this ointment for her is anointing his body, he says. This word anointing is what is rooted in the very word Christ and what it means or in Hebrew Messiah, it's anointed one. God's chosen anointed king. Literally to say something that someone's anointed is to say that they, they have, they've had oil poured over them. It's this way of set apart and distinct for the role that they have. Once again, pointing back to Mary and her appearance here that's so profound is throughout the Old Testament, there were many anointed ones. There were kings that would show up and they were always anointed by, either it was a, a prophet or a priest, but in all cases was always a man that was doing it. And here, Jesus' anointing This is his moment of being anointed as the chosen king. And it's not being done by the chief priests or some prophet, but by Mary. (laughs) Y'all, there's there's a whole sermon in just that alone. 
But what's also unique is that he is not being anointed with the normal kind of common oil that would have anointed, but this, this nard, this specifically this expensive ointment that was used to, to put over dead bodies to kind of cover the smell back in the day and kind of anoint them before you would put them into the grave. And that's why Jesus says that her gift is, is, is symbolic in two ways because she's not just anointing me, she's anointing my body beforehand for burial that my anointed status as the chosen Christ and the King is somehow also contingent upon and connected to my burial, my death. This is part of why we've been calling the ending of Mark's gospel where Jesus is about to go to his death, enthroning Jesus. Because in some paradoxical way, the way that Mark has set forward this story, the story of Jesus, is that his death in his crucifixion, him being raised up on the cross, is him being raised up as king of creation and the king of the world. And so Jesus says, her sacrifice, what she's just done to me, is an image of my own sacrifice, my own death. That like her gift was very costly, so too my sacrifice will be so costly, it will be my very life. That like she broke that alabaster flask, leaving nothing for herself, that I too will break not just an alabaster flask, but my body itself on the cross. That her gift is seen as shameful and stupid to the world, that so too the story of a crucified and resurrected king will be seen as shameful and stupid to the world. And as hers was extravagant, so too my grace that comes through my death will be extravagant. Because unlike Judas's reason for his sacrifice being a mystery, Jesus's is not. Mark 10, 45, as we were a few months ago, we found that Jesus said that this, my death is the enthroning act of me as king. The son of man has come not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. This is what he has come to do. And so Mary's sacrifice points to Jesus' sacrifice for her in the days ahead and for us, which is why Jesus says, wherever the gospel story is told, she will be remembered. And here 2,000 years later, we are doing just that. So as we wrap up, our lives are not Well, no, our lives are. Our lives are determined by. Our love is revealed in the sacrifices that we make over the course of our lives. Judas sacrificed Jesus for 30 silver coins and Mary sacrificed 300 denarii for Jesus. Mary's sacrifice for Jesus determined her life. She goes on to become one of the first witnesses of the resurrected Jesus. And in this story, we find a revelation, a revealing of her love that she loved Jesus over everything. And in particular, her, her financial security, her safety, her, her planning for the future. She laid all of that aside in this moment of anointing Jesus as king. On the other side, in contrast, Judas's sacrifice of Jesus determined his life. In the days ahead, his loss, his grief, his regret, and ultimately his suicide, where they left him not just saying no to Jesus, but then in what he got, not even wanting that and saying no, that ultimately led to him sacrificing, giving up his own life, him saying no to life and yes to death. And in that moment, what we found here today is a revelation of his love. Whether it was financial payout or political honor, it was not. Jesus, though he had been with him for years. And so the mirror stands before you 
What is your life? What is mine? What are our loves? What am I sacrificing? What am I saying no to? What am I sacrificing for? What are those things that I'm saying yes to? As we look over our lives, in all likelihood, we are this big mess of really good sacrifices and really bad ones. That we have said no to the things that we should say no to so we can say yes to the truly beautiful things. And yet at the same time, we so often will say no to the things that we truly care about, the things that are most important as we say yes to the things that give us short-term fixes or, or some sideline thing of what we might think that we want, only to discover that we don't. And too often we sacrifice Jesus. We say no to him as we pursue the many other yeses that are available to us, both big and little. This happens through greed, can happen through honor, political or cultural honor of comfort, whatever sexual uh, pleasure and comfort system that we may have, or even apart from our sexuality, just any comfort system that we may have, some pursuit of a comfort that is in effect us saying no to some other level of health or engagement. We can often say no to Jesus as we say yes to some other relationship. And maybe what you've found over the course of your life is that you found like Judas, the reward was nothing like you thought or even wanted. That you said no to Jesus and over the course of your life, you have found the 30 silver coins you got in return are just, it, it leaves you like Judas. You want to throw them away. It's left you like Judas with shame and fear and guilt. And maybe even for some of you, even the loss of the will to keep going. Some of you like Judas and the list of the sacrifices that you've made, that what you've finally said yes to has built up to a point where you don't know if you can keep going. Where suicidal ideation is what continues within you right now. My, my plead with you is that if that's where you may be, that you may hear from the tragedy of Judas, his story ended in isolation. Him being alone in what was then referred to as the, as the field of blood. There's some of you that are walking through that field and you're walking in the rejection, the shame and the fear and the guilt and the regret that you have and you're walking through that alone. My, my, my pleading with you is that you may not walk in that isolation, but that you may reach out to one of your pastors or even if it's, if it's as necessary as like right now within the hour that even calling uh, the National Suicide Crisis Line, just having not to walk through this alone. And so wherever you're at, maybe you're, you, know, you, you hear me talking about those that might be dealing with suicidal ideation. Maybe that's you, or maybe you're like, I'm not there. But regardless, at some level, when we talk through this, the little and big sacrifices, the yeses and the nos that you've made over the course of your life, it has left you disillusioned with this whole experience. It has left you deconstructed and depressed, of even ashamed or exhausted. You're like Judas standing there with the 30 silver coins, and you're just like, I, I consistently have made the wrong choice, or maybe you're standing at the altar right now and you're faced with the decision of yes to Jesus and his totality or no, and you go somewhere else. The hope of Mark's gospel for all of us is found in something that I noted earlier, that Mark does not set Judas as the only one to betray, to sacrifice, to say no to Jesus over the next few chapters. 
Next week, as we continue in Mark 14, we're going to find that Jesus, over the course of the Passover dinner, prophesies his right-hand man, Peter, is going to deny him three times, is going to say no to him. And Peter does, not once, but three times, says no to Jesus and yes, to anonymity, to safety and security and not getting roped into this Jesus thing. Judas and Peter together reject. They say no to Jesus and yes to something else. But unlike Judas, Peter goes on to become an apostle, a pastor, an author of books of the Bible and a source for Mark's gospel, what we're reading right here. Ultimately, his life being a martyr where he would sacrifice his life. He would say so, uh, such a strong yes to Jesus that he said no to not just political honor, but his life. What separated Judas from Peter? What was the trajectory transformation that happened where Peter and Judas ended up at two radically different places? And in doing so, what can transform our lives from going down the trajectory of Judas into the way of Peter, which in many ways mirrors the sacrifice of Mary that we just read a moment ago? For Peter, on the other side of his rejection of Jesus, it was his experience of the resurrected Jesus three days later, his breakfast on the beach, as John's gospel recounts. Where Peter, there in his time with Jesus, heard from him the good news of the gospel of what Jesus has come to do. That though our lives are determined by our ugly sacrifices, they are transformed by Jesus' beautiful one. This is what catapulted Peter into his whole, the rest of his life. His first sermon that he gave at Pentecost, you know, a couple weeks later, he stood up and he talked about, he said, this Jesus who being in Jerusalem, you all killed, was actually sacrificed in some way according to the plan of God. That for him on the other side of meeting with the resurrected Jesus is that he saw within his rejection of Jesus was actually the, the avenue through which Jesus redeemed him. That his no to Jesus was somehow the avenue of Jesus's yes to him. That the place, the altar where we sacrifice Jesus is the place where Jesus sacrificed himself for us. Where Judas's life was determined based off of his rejection ending with him hanging from a tree. Peter's life was transformed when he realized that his rejection was actually somehow Jesus accepting and receiving that for him as he saw Jesus hanging from his tree. There's some transformation here that, that I can't even fully put into words that our moment of no to him was his moment of yes to us as, as uh, John or Paul would later say that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That in the moment of our rejection, that is the very place where Jesus loved us so much. Some of you, the rejection and the no, the sacrifice to Jesus that you have made or currently are making, little or big, has left you with all of these feelings of rejection and differentiation from the person of Jesus. And this story, the way of Peter is trying to show you that is actually in that moment, what you're feeling right now is the very place where Jesus so loved you that he gave himself for you. Because his love is revealed in his sacrifice. And this transformation that he brings about is that our lives now being transformed are determined 
not just by our sacrifices, but even more by his sacrifice, which then in turn now transforms our sacrifices, where we, like Mary, offer up our futures and all that we are to him. And in doing so, we anoint him as king. We anoint him as king, not just over creation, but over our lives, and we walk in that way. Let's pray.